You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Join us now for Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I'm happy to share with you a little bit more of Archbishop Sheen's talks on peace. And uh, again, we've been kind of going through some of his reflections from the Second World War, and I know many of you are finding these very informative. They're um, helping you to make sense of the wars that are taking place at our present time. I, I know, I think there's confusion about, you know, the war in Russia and the Ukraine and who's right, who's wrong. Um, many of us ask those questions and of course we can ask the same questions about, you know, peace in China and Asia and Korea and the Middle East and in South America. There's wars happening all over the world. And so uh, I think these lessons about peace are very important. Um, and, and Sheen was a great teacher. Uh, of course, he taught at the Catholic University of America for over 20 years. And so uh, always just, uh, you know, making sure that his students understood the subject matter. And so when it comes to peace, Fulton Sheen is saying there's pillars of peace or lessons or concepts that you have to understand. And so today he, he's going to unpack the pillar of goodwill. Uh, now we hear in the scriptures, men of goodwill. And, uh, you know, sometimes we hear the term people of goodwill. And so we need to become these people of goodwill. And I think with Fulton Sheen, of course, as our teacher today, uh, many of us will benefit from this lesson. So uh, we'll have that in the first half of our broadcast. And then we will share with you, uh, again, a retreat that Fulton Sheen gave to a group of families uh, in the 1970s. And today's topic that he will address is on the devil. And, uh, you know, we need to know our enemy. Uh, my mom always said that, know who your enemies are and understand how they think, how they act. And I think we need to understand who the devil is and what his plan is. And so, uh, again, uh, again, we need all the help we can get. So Fulton Sheen will kind of, uh, again, unpack that topic. And so uh, just as I always do, I invite you just to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he gives a reflection on the pillar of goodwill. Please enjoy. The Catholic Hour presents again to the radio audience the Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America, Washington, D.C., 
The title of Monsignor Sheen's talk is Men of Goodwill, Monsignor Sheen. Friends, those of you who did the courtesy of listening last week will recall that we pleaded for unity among men of goodwill against a common enemy. To further encourage that feeling of unity, we said that the National Council of Catholic Men was publishing a little book entitled Friends, which will be sent free to you if you write and ask for it just as soon as it is off the press. We trust, too, that in order to make this plea effective, all listeners will spend an hour a day in prayer. And Catholics, whenever possible, will make that hour in the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Today we take another step in this series. Granted the need of unity among Jews and Protestants and Catholics, the next question is, what kind of unity? As Hamlet said, I... There's the rub. For two kinds of unity are possible. Unity for religious purposes and unity for social purposes. Unity for religious purposes is commonly called union of churches and envisages the merging of various sects into a common belief, rite, or form of worship broad enough and vague enough to be acceptable to all. Unity for social purposes, on the contrary, leaves theology untouched and unites religious peoples rather than religions on the basis of certain moral principles that are necessary to guide the political, economic, and social life of our times. Which shall it be? Absolutely not a union of churches on the basis of the least common denominator. And why not? Well, first of all, because it does violence to truth. By what right do we sit in judgment on divinity and say, this much of thy truth we will accept, and this much we reject? We are not the creators of divine truth. We are only its trustees and its guardians. And what is God made may not be man unmade. And furthermore, a union of churches does violence to history. Our blessed Lord said to Peter, whose name he changed to Rock, Upon this rock I will build my church. He did not say, I will build my churches. There is only one truth to light a heaven. There is only one sun to light a world. There is only one church to light mankind. But in rejecting a union of churches purchased in compromise of truth and history, we nevertheless pay tribute to the ideals of its advocates who seek to promote charity among men. But there is another kind of unity possible among men of goodwill, namely unity for social purposes. Outside of the Catholic faith, there is a common ground where cooperation between men of goodwill is necessary and possible 
namely the preservation of the moral law in the social order. For example, we can be united for the defense of private property, for equality of all races and colors and classes, for the betterment of working conditions, for freedom of conscience, for a peace based on justice, and for 101 other moral requisites of a social order where men of goodwill can live short of a risk of martyrdom. It must, however, be understood that cooperation for the preservation of the moral basis of society must never be accepted as a substitute for religion. What now are the difficulties in the way of this kind of unity? For the moment, I speak to my fellow Catholics. It is very easy for us Catholics to excuse ourselves from collaboration for social purposes on the ground that politics are rotten or that communists hold important posts in government or that capitalism is incurably selfish. And because of this, to draw a part into a catacombic existence doing nothing except to chant the lamentations of Jeremiah's. It is incumbent upon Catholics to maintain fellowship across lines of difference if the moral order is to be preserved. This is sound Catholic doctrine. When, for example, France was going through that terrible struggle of monarchy and republicanism, Leo XIII appealed for joint action of Catholics and non-Catholics to save what he called the moral grandeur of France. These were his words. We exhort not only Catholics, but all Frenchmen of goodwill and good sense to put far from them every source of political dissension in order that they may consecrate their energies solely to the pacification of their country. And Pius X urged Catholics, and here I quote him verbatim, to cultivate that peace with their non-Catholic fellow citizens without which neither social order nor civil prosperity can be achieved. And certainly none of us today may forget that our present Holy Father has condemned, and here I quote him, those currents of thought which hold that since redemption belongs to the sphere of supernatural grace and is therefore exclusively the work of God, there is no need for us to cooperate on earth. We trust, therefore, that no Catholic will excuse himself from the duty of uniting with men of goodwill for the moral renewal of society in spirit and in truth. Now a word about us all, Jews and Protestants and Catholics. All decent Americans today are very much disturbed about the hate which war engenders. The Jews are worried about anti-Semitism. Christians are disturbed by those commentators and journalists who give approval nine times out of ten to those political or world forces which are deliberately anti-religious. Up to this time, men of goodwill have attempted to crush this spirit of hate by an appeal to tolerance. It is our position that tolerance is inadequate to deal with that problem. And the reasons are obvious. Modern tolerance has a very bad history. 
It was conceived in its present form by the merchants of the 18th century, who, seeing that theological disputes hurt business, suggested that all religions be regarded as unimportant. Modern tolerance is not based on respect for persons, but on indifference to truth and to right and wrong. Hence the favorite slogan of modern tolerance is, there are two sides to every question. Forgetful that religion, truth, and justice, if they have two sides, have the same two sides as flypaper, the right and the wrong. This war has given a terrific jolt to this false tolerance. For if there is no objective difference between right and wrong, independent of our point of view, tell me, why should we be fighting the Nazis and the Japs? And how could we be right if it makes no difference what you believe? Nothing has so vitiated the wells of friendliness as that unspeakably stupid statement of Voltaire about tolerance. You have heard it quoted many times, namely, I will fight your opinions with my life, but I will fight to the death your right to hold them. Now that sounds very good in the abstract, but translated into the concrete language of our day, and what does Voltaire say? Voltaire would say to Hitler, I will fight your Nazism with its brutal murder of women and children with my life, but I will also fight for your right to hold those views. Or, I will fight against you if you attempt to murder your mother-in-law with an axe, but I will use another axe to defend your right to the opinion that a mother-in-law should be murdered. And this same Voltaire who set himself up as an apostle of tolerance and spent most of his time writing about it as the same one who attacked Christianity, saying it took only 12 men to found that infamy. It will take only one to destroy it. But Voltaire is dead. In vain will the Jew seek to crush anti-Semitism and in vain will the Christian seek to crush anti-Christianity and bigotry and hatred if our appeals are based solely on indifference to truth. Error of and by itself has no rights. Absolutely none. But persons in error have rights. They have all the rights of creatures of God. And the Jew or the Christian, therefore, who is satisfied with merely being tolerated in society, has already surrendered some of his rights and made himself less respectable. Not until we recognize the dignity of human nature as such, created by a loving God and destined for a union with love with him, will we ever find an adequate basis for loving one another. There are only two philosophies of life anyway. We must decide which we will choose in our search for unity. The one says, Man is descended from a monkey. 
Therefore, let us love one another. And the other philosophy stated in the words of our Lord is, Love one another as I have loved you. There's no possibility of love in the first. For if we came from the beast, then let us act like beasts. But if we were made by love, then we should love one another as God loves us. As the spokes of a wheel are united because they all center in the hub, so we can be united only in our center, who is God. And a very good start toward this collaboration of men of goodwill would be to declare a moratorium on name-calling. Consider the present tendency among those who hate the Catholic Church to call the Church fascist, or the tendency of many good Christians to call all men who are interested in forward social legislation communists, or the more general tendency to call anyone who opposes our pet ideas a Nazi or a friend of Hitler. These labels are thrown about in the press and on the radio just as commonly as ignorant boys write dirty words on back fences. They're just as low and foul. And they mean nothing but hate. We are indeed in a very sorry impasse when a man's patriotism is challenged because he does not love an undemocratic government in a foreign land as much as he loves his own dear America. Love God, and then you will love your neighbor, whomsoever he be. And regardless of race or class or color, love alone is the basis of unity. And regardless of what our political vision may be, we must all subscribe to the words of the Holy Father, who bids us foster in the common bond of love our unity. Shall those who glory in the name of the Christian forget these words? A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. And shall the Jew forget his Leviticus? Thou shalt love thy friend as thyself. I am thy Lord. And shall the pagan forget that Aristotle said, Nothing is more proper to friendship than to share each other's lives. Men of goodwill, therefore, unite. Unite not because there is not a divine religious voice in the world, for there is, but because society, in abandoning the rule of conscience, is on the very verge of suicide. March separately according to the light of your conscience, Jew, Protestant, and Catholic, but strike together for the moral betterment of the world. Centuries ago, the star of Bethlehem became the beacon that led the truly wise men to the God of love who appeared in the flesh and who preached, love God and love your neighbor. On this day, millions of stars are out again, shining in the windows of millions of American homes 
whence the flower of American manhood has gone out to write a world that forgot the meaning of that first star and the love that lived at the end of its trail. The star-spangled banner now flies in a star-spangled land. And what a changed America this land would be if every watcher of these stars, like wise men, saw they led to God and to him offered gifts as they knelt one hour a day in adoration of him that peace might reign again. Stars come out only at night as centuries on watch in the encampment of the skies. But even in the darkness they are free for they obey God's laws. Our stars are out too in all our homes because it is night. There is darkness over the earth. We have forgotten our God. May not too many blue stars turn to gold before we begin to love one another with that love with which he first loved us. And would that with as many eyes as stars we looked on God and prayed and hoped and loved that peace might dawn as the light of the world comes to us again all over the world. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that reflection from Archbishop Sheen, uh, entitled Men of Goodwill. And I tell you, I picked up a few pointers there that I'm going to work on. I loved how he uh, challenged us to have a moratorium on name-calling. And I know I'm guilty of that many times, and I think uh, a number of you at home also probably uh, your ears picked up when you heard that. And again, we have to love one another. And I think sometimes, uh, again, I think prejudices are learned. Um, and so, of course, we have to unlearn these uh, bad behaviors, and name-calling isn't good. And so uh, I know I'm going to work on that over the next little while, and I'm sure many of you also will do that. All right, we're going to, um, of course, now enjoy uh, a reflection from Archbishop Sheen uh, that he gave during a family retreat a number of years ago, and he's going to be speaking on the topic of the devil, and so I invite you once again to just sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Sheen, as he gives a reflection during a family retreat. Please enjoy. I have a beautiful young audience here immediately in front of me, and I called the youngest of them to me just a few minutes ago, and I said, if you get tired, you go to sleep. (laughs) That applies to the rest of you in the audience as well. I was once talking in a church and the baby began to cry and the mother took the babe out. As she was going down the aisle, I said, Madam, the child is not bothering me. She said, No, you're bothering the child. (laughs) A 
woman bought an expensive dress, brought it home to the husband, showed him the bill, and he said to her, when you tried it on, why didn't you say, get behind me, Satan? She said, I did, and he said, it looks so good from the back. There was a man went to heaven, and he thought perhaps he would like to go to hell, see what it was like, and he asked St. Peter if he could go down. So he went down to hell and rather enjoyed himself over the weekend. Came back to heaven, and the following weekend said to Peter, Really, I, I didn't mind it down there. Could I go down again? Yes, said Peter. And for the second time, he came back and reported enjoying himself. The third time, he asked to go down, and Peter said, Now, this is your last time. When he got down, the devil put him in one of the hot corners of hell. And he said to the devil, When I was here before, you treated me nicely. Yes, he said, Then you were a tourist. Now you're a resident. <laughs> so remember, we get treated very well now by the devil, but when we're residents, he does not treat us as well. I have a missionary priest friend of mine has been my intimate for over 35 years. And he's been a missionary in China, Korea, Vietnam, has been in prison in Russia. And the last time I saw him, he told me that he went into one of the churches in Vietnam and the children were gathered around another girl who was about 10 or 12 years of age. And they pointed the girl out to him and the girl had a veil over her face. And he pulled the veil down and he said it was the ugliest face that he had ever seen. Not so much the face itself physically, but the ugly features that she portrayed. He paid little attention to her, and the children came to him the next day. And then he became a bit frightened of her, and he asked if she had lived, lived in the village, and she had lived in the village just a short period of her life. He spoke French to her. She spoke perfect French. Spoke Italian, spoke Latin though she had no training in any of these languages. And he felt then perhaps that she was possessed. And he took a relic of the little flower and brought it to her. She reacted violently. Then took the relic out and just brought the frame of the relic and she laughed at him. And then he briefly exercised her and she was perfectly normal. Now, because we are so, we get so much of our theology from the press, I thought perhaps you might be interested in hearing about the devil from a sound philosophical and theological point of view. I'm going to describe to you 
the devil first from the psychiatric point of view and secondly from the biblical first the psychiatric it is interesting that as we drop things in the church the world begins to pick them up and distorts them now we for example the nuns drop the long habits the girls put on maxi coats we stop saying the beads hippies put the beads around their neck and as theologians dropped the demonic the psychiatrist picked it up Rollo May of Rockefeller Institute has several chapters in his work on psychiatry on the diabolic what is the diabolic from the purely psychiatric point of view Dr. Rollo May analyzes the word diabolic it comes from the Greek words dia and balain dia balain is to tear apart rend asunder anything therefore that breaks pattern that destroys unity that corrupts gestalt produces discord that is the diabolic now there has been a great increase of the diabolic notice for example the discord in the church the discord in religious communities the discord among the laity as regards the church discords in the clergy all these are manifestations of a spirit of the diabolic that is that surrounds us now this psychiatrist analyzes the way in which the diabolic works and he mentions three first love of nudity secondly violence aggressiveness thirdly split personalities no inner peace disjointed minds first a love of nudity I asked a chaplain some years ago in, a, in an institution if he had manifest any manifestations of the diabolic in an institution where he was and said yes sometimes when I bring the blessed sacrament in the people strip as I pass the room but we leave that aside that is not important I would rather refer you to the gospel now our blessed Lord one time went into the land of the Gerizines or Gadarenes it depends upon which translation of the scriptures you are using and he found in this land a young man possessed by the devil the gospel mentions three characteristics of this young man first he was nude 
Secondly, he was violent and aggressive. They could not even keep him in chains. And thirdly, his mind was split, schizophrenic. Our Lord said to him, what is your name? He said, my name is Legion. Now, a legion in his time meant 6,000 soldiers in the Roman army. See already, he's a person and yet he's legion, 6,000 others. My name is Legion, for we are many. See, the personality is no longer unified. I, Legion, we, many. Now, this psychiatrist does not ever correlate his three manifestations of the diabolic with this young man in the gospel. I am doing that because I could not help but notice the similarity between the two. So from just a superficial point of view, the diabolic disrupts. And whenever you have a great manifestation of the Spirit, you always get the devil working. When, for example, Moses in the Old Testament worked miracles against Pharaoh, Pharaoh's agents simulated a few miracles. When the Holy Spirit came upon the early church, Pentecost, there was the persecution of Stephen. We had a Vatican Council. The blessing of the Spirit upon the church. And we have immediately the manifestation of the evil spirit. So I just leave you with this characteristic note of the diabolic from the psychiatric point of view. The breakup of unity, the breakup of families, breakup of corporations, breakup of religious communities, breakup of the oneness of Christ. That is one analysis of the demonic. The second, the biblical. I take you now to the 16th chapter of Matthew. Our blessed Lord had asked the most important question that could ever be asked. Who do men say that I am? Eventually, Peter gave the right answer. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then our blessed Lord announced that he was going up to Jerusalem to be delivered over to the Gentiles, to be spat upon, crucified, and eventually would rise from the dead. Peter was willing to have a divine Christ, but he was not willing to have a suffering one. Well, go back now to the beginning of our Lord's public life, and I will reveal to you again the three temptations that were presented to our Lord by Satan. And we will learn from this discussion 
that the essence of the satanic or the diabolic is the hatred of the cross of Christ. Now, let that dwell in your minds. What is the satanic from the biblical point of view? It is the contempt of the cross of Christ. It's anti-cross. As a proof now, and that is the meaning, we go back to the temptation. Our blessed Lord is on the mountain, and Satan offers him three short cuts from the cross. You want mankind to follow you? I will tell you the way, said Satan. You do not need a cross. I will give you three short cuts. The first, see those stones down there? They look like little loaves of bread, don't they? You haven't eaten in 40 days. The first shortcut, permissiveness. Do whatever you feel like doing. The second temptation. The cross will never win mankind because mankind loves wonders, surprises, the startling, the marvelous, anything that will make them say, oh, they'll forget the marvels in a week, then repeat another marvel, fly to the moon. Throw yourself from the steeple and be unhurt. That's a marvel. Do that and the crowds will follow you. But you need no cross. And the final temptation, which will be the temptation of the church in the next 100 years? And we have the dim beginnings of it now. Satan says theology is politics. Why bother with theology? God. The mystery of redemption. The only thing that matters is politics. And holding, as it were, the shiny globe of the world in his hand, Satan said, All these kingdoms are mine. Am I? And I will give them to you. If falling down you will adore me. Was Satan for once in his life telling the truth? Are all the kingdoms his? But in any case, it was the third temptation of our blessed Lord, not to be concerned with the divine, but to be concerned only with the social and political order. Now come back to our Lord calling Peter Satan. 
reason he did was because Satan tempted our Lord from the cross and that is precisely what Peter was trying to do when he said to him this shall not be we will recognize your divinity but will not recognize the cross and from that time on to this this is the biblical essence of the satanic we have it the spirit of it in the church notice how much we've given up mortification self-denial discipline in schools in seminaries the attempted disruption Books, for example, that will only describe the evil, real or imaginary, of people. And they are in some of our schools, as you well know. This is the disruptive element, the diabolic. But the decline of the spirit of discipline is a hatred of the cross. The ascetic or the disciplinary character of Christianity has moved to the totalitarian states. It is in China. It is in Russia. There, there's discipline, self-denial, commitment to a common purpose, but without a cross and therefore with complete destruction of human liberty. How much will this diabolic and the satanic and contempt of the cross continue to manifest itself? Well, we do not know for sure that we are in the age of the demonic. But there's a passage in St. Paul which at first seems very difficult. May I read it to you and then I will explain it. It is in Second Theologians, chapter 2, verse 7. Now remember, Paul was writing this well within the first 60 years of Christianity. Already the secret power of wickedness is at work secret secret only for the present in other words we cannot see the manifestation of evil and the demonic secret only for the present until the restrainer disappears from the scene we do not know precisely who is the restrainer Maybe Christ, maybe the Holy Spirit, maybe an influx of grace, maybe the holiness of the church. But in any case, the evil is secret until God says, all right, now evil, you will have your day, your hour. God has his day, evil has his hour. And then continuing. And then he will be revealed, Satan. 
that wicked man whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth and annihilate by the radiance of his coming. But the coming of that wicked man is the work of Satan. It will be attended by powerful signs and miracles and lies and all deception that sinfulness can impose on those who are doomed to destruction. Even in the last book of scripture we get the hint that when the Antichrist comes there will be a simulated death and resurrection in order to deceive. So at present we cannot see the demonic at work. But let me give you a hint as to how Christ works and how Satan works. Now if you understand what I'm about to tell you, it will help you very much in dealing with the evil of the world and in overcoming it. I'm going to describe how our Lord appears before we sin and how Satan appears before we sin. Then I will describe how our Lord appears after we sin and how Satan appears after we sin. First of all, how does our Lord appear bef just before we sin, as when we are about to sin? Well, he appears as thou shalt not. He appears as the Lord on the cross. He bars the way. He says, my flesh was crucified, your flesh be crucified too. Go not this way. And so he stands in front of us. Oh, we're not free. We cannot do all we want to do. Christ is there. But how does Satan say? or talk when we are about to sin oh don't be sick we don't believe those things anymore times have changed are you still a virgin you mean you've never had a smoke of marijuana listen everybody's doing it Don't pay attention to those doctors who tell you that it'll hurt your brain cells. You've got to live. You have to be yourself. You haven't committed adultery. Everybody's doing it now. These views of strict morality were all right a hundred years ago or five hundred years ago. But this is a new world. I gotta be me, I gotta be free. That's the way the devil talks. He's on our side. Before we sin, Christ seems to be the accuser. Before we sin, the devil is our defender. He's on our side. The side of our sex, 
the side of our pride, the side of our greed. He takes our part. After we sin, then the roles are reversed. Then Christ becomes the defender and the devil the accuser. And the devil will say, All right, now you've had your dope. Now you're hooked. Don't come to me, I can't help you. You might just as well give up. Sure, you've lost your virginity. Now what difference does it make? You might just as well go on. Sure, you've stolen. You haven't been caught, but you will be. Or you're about to be caught. And so the devil fills us with despair. He filled the heart of Judas with despair. Judas could have gone to the Savior. And the Savior would have forgiven him. But Judas took a rope and walked the frozen ground before the frosty trees. And every knot and every tree seemed to him like an eye. And every branch of every tree seemed to be an accusing finger. Traitor. There was nothing for him to do in his despair but suicide. And that is one of the reasons why suicide is on the increase in our civilization despair the devil got us in one of the novels of Dostoevsky Raskolnikov who was a very evil man said to a girl whom he loved he said, Sonia, you know what's going to happen to you. You're either going to jump off a bridge or you're going mad or you will cut your throat. But that was not the way it happened. Because Sonia picked up the Gospel of John and she began reading the resurrection of Lazarus and she said, I can find new life in Christ. Which brings me to the way that our Lord acts after the sin. Now he is our defender. He said, come to me. All ye who labor, if your sins are as scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. And if they are as red as crimson, they shall be made white as wool. 
poor, piteous, futile thing. Why should any set thee love apart? For how hast thou merited? Of all man's clotted clay, the dingiest clot. Alas, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. For whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee? Save me. Save only me. All that thy child's mistakes fancies is lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. This is the language of the Savior after we sin. Now I've told you what the diabolic is. The disruption of unity. The satanic the contempt of the cross, mortification and self-denial, and therefore of Christ himself. There are 10,000 times 10,000 roads down which any of you may travel for a lifetime. And it makes no difference which road you travel. At the end of all of these roads, you are going to see two faces. Either the merciful face of Christ or the horrible face of Satan. And either one at the end of your life will say, Play not, therefore, with that which is evil. Otherwise we are caught. And I will tell you the three powerful weapons against Satan. First, the holy name of Jesus. That is a name that Satan cannot stand. Because in the name of Jesus every knee will bow in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. The second, the blood of Christ. The invocation of the blood of Christ. I may give you a sermon on that. But we are saved by the blood of Christ. And therefore in temptation call upon his blood for without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin and thirdly devotion to our blessed mother for at the beginning in the book of Genesis it was the seed of a woman that would crush the seed of Satan we are armed with three these three weapons 
the holy name, the blood of Christ, and the Blessed Mother. And when you think of the diabolic and the demonic and the satanic, do not be led off the track by what you may hear through the media of communications. The demonic very simply is the anti-cross. The anti-disciplined life. The antichrist. That's the satanic. Nothing else. You'll never go wrong if you understand that. And he bids you love that cross. Whenever there's silence round about me by day or night, I am startled by a cry. It came down from the cross the first time I heard it. And I went out and searched and found a man in the throes of crucifixion. And I said, I will take you down. And I tried to take the nails out of his feet. But he said, let them be. For I cannot be taken down until every man, woman, and child come together to take me down. But I said, what can I do? I cannot bear your cry. And he said, go into the world and tell every man that you meet, there is a man on the cross. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear Radio Maria family, thank you for joining me this week, and um, I look forward to coming back next week to share a little bit more of the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I may invite you to visit our website, bishopsheentoday.com, and there you'll find hundreds of videos and audio recordings for your enjoyment. And uh, again, I ask you to continue to pray for me, and most certainly I will pray for you. And so, my friends, until next week. May the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.